0: Let's pray together once more, shall we, before we have our scripture reading and our time in the word. Lord, our prayer is very simple this morning. Like the psalmist, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would behold the wondrous things in your law. Would you speak to us through your word and remind us of all that you've done for us and who you are as we spend this time together? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Zechariah, if you have your Bibles with you, is the second to last book in the Old Testament. So maybe start with Matthew in the New Testament and then flip backwards. You'll have Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, and then before Malachi is Zechariah. And I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles or your uh, app, your Bible app on your mobile device open, as we're going to be referring to this passage quite often. Uh, I will show some other verses in different passages, a couple quotes on the screen, but uh, would like us to keep referring to our actual text in the Bibles that we have with us or your smartphone app. I'm reading from the NIV today the new international version, and I do have an NIV Bible, but I was trying to, you know, before we have our, uh, our worship service, I'll just do a dry run where I'll read the text out loud to myself in that room over there, and I was having a hard time seeing the font. That, that's kind of where I'm at right now, so i got to read off the screen and make the font bigger. Oh, it's so sad, but that's the reality I'm in. So we'll be looking at Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Here we go. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Verse 6, The angel of the Lord gave his charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land. In a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. This is God's word. Uh, you know, earlier this year, I scheduled a trip to return to Haiti in November, just a couple of weeks from now. Uh, I will not be going, unfortunately. Things are still a bit too unstable there after the former president's assassination this past July and then the devastating earthquake that struck in August. And I'm sure some of you have also heard about the kidnapping of 17 American and Canadian missionaries, which happened just over a week ago in the country's capital city, Port-au-Prince. They were leaving an orphanage and they were kidnapped by gangs, which seem to be kind of ruling the streets in Port-au-Prince right now. So I will unfortunately not be returning, at least not anytime soon, but I do ask all of you to remember Haiti and your prayers. I receive updates regularly from Pastor Jude Aguzma. Even he has stopped flying into the capital city when he returns back. He's been going into the second largest city called Capation and uh, his most recent update from just last week actually said that things are going about as well as they can expect, we can expect for the school and the church. But he did also ask us to pray for these kidnapped missionaries. Uh, I have some fond memories from my previous eight visits to Haiti. Of course, there are the people I've met and befriended, especially the pastors and church leaders. I miss them very much. And I do actually miss some of the food. I miss They're rice and beans and that special sauce that they pour on top of it. But some of my memories aren't just from my time in the country itself. I've also got some memories from the actual traveling to and from Haiti. I've run into a few mishaps, and there's one particular memory that sticks out. On one trip, I was coming home with a friend and fellow pastor, and our flight out of Haiti was supposed to land in Miami for a layover. But we got rerouted to Puerto Rico because the plane was having some mechanical problems. And so we landed in San Juan. We had to go through customs there. And then we had to wait for like three or four hours in the terminal while American Airlines was looking for a new flight to book us on back to Miami. And so we went through that ordeal of just kind of waiting. We were hungry. We were tired. You know, kind of first-world problems. But by the time we finally got on the plane in Puerto Rico and then landed in Miami. My friend and I had long missed our connecting flight to Chicago. So we were basically stuck there. We just spend an extra night in Miami and then take the next available flight the following day to Chicago. American Airlines was kind enough to put us in a hotel free of charge because of all the troubles we went through. And so at the very least, my friend and I were able to sleep in a comfortable bed instead of on the airport floor. And we even took a nice shower. That was really nice. But there was one small problem. I didn't pack an extra set of clothes. I should have, but I just wasn't expecting to spend an extra night on my way home. So I took this nice, long, refreshing shower. felt like a million bucks when I came out. And then... I had to put on the same clothes that I wore out of hot and humid Haiti. Same socks, same shorts, same t-shirt, same everything. Yes, it felt as nasty as it sounds. Now maybe there's a few of us here, I don't know, youth group students might be thinking, oh, is there a problem here? I, I put on dirty clothes every day. But I know there's some of us here who are thinking, oh, that's gross. Well, yes, yes, it is gross. You can probably tell from our scripture reading this morning that dirty clothes is one of the key themes in today's passage from Zechariah. And I'm not sure how familiar we might be with this rather obscure book. Zechariah was a prophet who lived during the later part of Old Testament history. He came long after Moses and the Exodus. His time was long after important kings like David and Hezekiah and Josiah. Zechariah served long after other prophets like Elijah and Isaiah and Jonah. By the time Zechariah arrived on the scene, the Babylonians had already attacked the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. They had conquered the land of Judah and taken god's people into exile in fact a handful of them had already returned back to their homeland after babylon itself was conquered by the persians and one of the first priorities for these jews who had come back to their homeland was building a new temple to replace the one that had been destroyed earlier according to ezra chapter 5 two leaders who played a key role in this rebuilding project were Zerubbabel, who was the governor over the land at the time, and Joshua, who served as the high priest. And Zechariah is also mentioned here as one of the prophets who helped kind of get this building project started. This marked a beginning of a new hope for this generation of God's people. Zechariah talks about this in the first chapter of his book. In chapter 1, verse 4, Zechariah warns them, do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Now that was the previous generation that went into exile. How did this new generation respond? Well, just a couple of verses later in the same chapter, verse 6, we read, Then they repented, and said, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. Now that's an encouraging response. And if we keep reading, we'll see that Zechariah then has a series of visions. Eight visions, in fact. And these visions reveal how God is going to restore his people and deal justly with their enemies. But one of these visions, the fourth one right in the middle, hits the brakes. There's all this hope, all these promises, but then there's an abrupt change, because this vision focuses on a major problem facing God's people during that period of time. And that problem is going to be the first of three topics we're going to consider from our passage this morning. We're going to look at the problem first, and then we'll talk about the solution, and then we'll finish with the cost. The problem, the solution, and then the cost. Let's start with the problem. Now, if you have your Bibles or your mobile apps still open, if you look at verse 1, verse 1 sets the stage for us. In verse 1, we read then, He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. Now, in just this one verse, we have... All the features describing what we might call a courtroom scene. We have a judge. In this case, the judge is an angel who is acting as God's appointed representative. We also have a defendant who is on trial. That's Joshua. And we have a prosecutor. In this case, it's Satan who is accusing the defendant and insisting that he is guilty. Now, what exactly is the problem here? Well, verse 1 also mentions that Joshua is the spiritual leader of his people. He is the high priest. Now, that was an incredibly important role, an incredibly important office in the Old Testament. The high priest had the unique responsibility of standing in between God and his people. More specifically, the high priesthood between a holy God and sinful people. The technical word for this role that was commonly used for this responsibility was mediator. The high priest was a mediator who stood between a holy God and his sinful people. And the most important way that the high priest carried out his role as a mediator was by offering a special animal sacrifice on a special day each year in a special room in the temple called the Most Holy Place. Only the high priest could enter this special room and only once a year on Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement to offer this animal sacrifice for the sins of the entire nation. Now this was an awesome responsibility. It's really what made the office of high priest so sacred. and It's also why the high priest, whoever he was, had to follow some special rules that didn't apply to anyone else. For example, he had to avoid anything that might make him unclean or unfit to participate in worship or carry out his duties as priest. That meant, for example, that he couldn't go near any dead person, even if it was a close relative like his dad or mom. That would make him unclean. And before he officially began his role as the high priest, Whoever was becoming in this role would have to go through a special ceremony to symbolize that he was cleansed and he was set apart for this work. We read about this in the book of Exodus when Aaron, the very first high priest, was ordained for this office together with his sons. Exodus 29 says, uh, has God given these instructions, then bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Take the garments And dress Aaron with the tunic, the robe of the ephod, the ephod itself, and the breastpiece. Fasten the ephod on him by its skillfully woven waistband. Put the turban on his head and attach the sacred emblem to the turban. Wow. Now why was it so important for the high priest to avoid any kind of ritual uncleanness? Why was it necessary for him to go through this elaborate ceremony of washing and dressing in these special clothes well it's because he was serving as the mediator for god's people he had to be pure he had to be clean if he was going to be able to enter into god's holy presence now we can imagine how excited joshua must have been as he was watching the new temple being built and once the construction was finished he and only he would be able to enter into that most holy place in this new temple on the Day of Atonement to offer that sacrifice. He would be able to fulfill the sacred responsibility that came with his office as the high priest. But there was a huge problem. If you look at verse 3 in our passage, verse 3 tells us that Joshua... And here I'm again quoting from the NIV. Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. Now if this is a trial in a courtroom, then the evidence is clear. This high priest cannot carry out his duties. The judge can see it. Satan, he can see it too. He accuses Joshua of being unclean. And the reality is, Satan is right. Because Joshua is unclean. Barry Webb, an Old Testament scholar, provides a good summary of what's going on here. He says, Joshua stands before the angel of the Lord turned inside out with what he really is on full display, covered with shame and condemned in the court of heaven. Satan, the accuser, does not even need to present the case against him. The filthy clothes Joshua wears do it for him. Joshua is in trouble here, and he knows it too. And if the high priest, the mediator, is in trouble, well, then the people are in trouble too. I mean, sure, they can finish rebuilding the temple, but that's not going to deal with the root problem of their sin and the way that it prevents them from coming to a holy God. Now, of course, Joshua's problem, the people's problem, is also our problem, isn't it? It's every person's problem. You and I, we are also unclean. Not just on the outside. It's not just our actions, but it's also who we are within. It's our It's our desires. It's our motives and inclinations. All of that stuff within us is what makes us unclean before a holy God. And this, my friends, is a huge problem. And maybe you've sensed it as you've heard the silent voice of our enemy accusing you. He whispers against you. He tells you that you are unclean, that you are unworthy, And maybe you felt that yourself, even without needing to hear his disheartening reminders. Thankfully for Joshua, and thankfully for us, there is a solution. That takes us to our next part. The solution. Well, it seems Joshua is doomed. Satan accuses him of being unworthy. And his dirty clothes clearly show that that is the case. He's unworthy. And so now it's time for the judge to issue his verdict. And it's clear that the verdict should be guilty. Guilty as charged. But then something strange and unexpected happens. God speaks through his angel, and he basically tells Satan to sit down and be quiet. Look with me again at verse 2. Verse 2 says, The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Here we see God rescuing Joshua from what would have been otherwise a slam dunk guilty verdict. In that sense, this unclean high priest is like a burning stick that's been snatched out of the fire, he's rescued. That's not all that happens. Look with me again at verse 4. In verse 4 it says, The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Wow, God doesn't just pronounce this guilty man innocent. He also takes away his sin." He says that very clearly in the second half of verse 4, I have taken away your sin. And we see this symbolized in the way that he instructs the others who are in the courtroom to remove Joshua's dirty clothes and replace them with new clothes. Fine garments is the way that the NIV puts it there. Boy, that is fantastic news for Joshua because really he had no other hope. It's not that he could pull out another set of priestly garments from a suitcase as if he had a whole bunch of extras lying around. These were the only ones he had, and they were unclean. Nor did Joshua have the option of just going home and putting these garments in a washing machine with his other dirty clothes. You know, some of us have had that experience of getting a stain on one of our favorite shirts or pants or whatever item of clothing it might be, and we can feel our hearts sink as we realize, oh man, that's not coming out. Doesn't matter how much I wash it, doesn't matter what kind of detergent I use, that stain is permanent. Now, Joshua was apparently in the same dilemma. His clothes were apparently that filthy, and he had no hope unless there was someone who was willing and able to provide a brand new set of garments. And that's exactly what ended up happening for him. God provided the new clothing for Joshua he removed the unclean ones and took them away. And I think, my friends, this change in the outward clothing beautifully pictures the change in Joshua's inward condition. If I can borrow again from my experience in Miami, Joshua didn't just get clean clothes, he was also able to take a hot and refreshing shower. He was washed and cleansed on the inside and out. You know, I love how Zechariah gets in on the fun in the next verse, in verse 5. If you look there with me, verse 5, it says, Then I said, not then the Lord said or the angel said, but then I said, put on a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. It's almost as if Zechariah interrupted God while he was giving his instructions, but Joshua's clothes. Maybe Zechariah got a bit too excited for Joshua as he saw this surprising change in his circumstances. And if, boy, if that's what happened, it's kind of hard to blame him. But in any case, the problem has now found a solution. With his new and clean clothes, Joshua can now carry out his duties as the high priest. That's great for him, and that's great for God's people, because they now have their mediator who can enter into that most holy place, Of that new temple once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer and sacrifice for the sins of the nation. Well, we looked at the problem and also the solution, but there's also a cost. There's a cost. I'm gonna finish with that. You know, if we're getting into this story at all, we might be happy for Joshua. I mean, that guy was guilty. He was guilty. And as we noted earlier, Satan knew it. And, you know, Joshua knew it too. Pretty much everyone there knew it. The evidence was clear. His clothes were dirty. But what about the judge? Did God know that Joshua was guilty? And if he did, if our answer to that is yes, then another question comes up. If God knew that Joshua was guilty, Why didn't he pronounce Joshua guilty? Why did he let him off the hook? That's really the question here. Barry Webb, the scholar I quoted earlier, gives a clear explanation of this dilemma. He writes, if this is indeed a courtroom scene, what has happened to due process? What kind of judge is this, who on the one hand acknowledges the reality of Joshua's sin and at the same time refuses to allow the case against him to proceed? How can a man who ought to be condemned be summarily acquitted and appointed to high office? Either sheer arbitrariness or a wanton partiality is operating here as when a corrupt judge dismisses charges against a personal friend or else there is another explanation. You know, Hearing a not guilty verdict is usually great news for the defendant. But we must ask, is that just? I think some of us here might be able to imagine how angry we would be if we knew a person was guilty and then saw him walk free. Especially if we also happen to be friends or relatives of any victims he may have harmed. And then we start asking questions how can this happen? How can this judge, who knows he's guilty, let him walk free? Maybe one explanation we think of is oh, he must have missed something. Maybe he overlooked a key piece of evidence or testimony from the witness. Or even worse, man, is this judge corrupt? Maybe a friend or relative of the defendant bought him off with the bribe. But in either situation, declaring a guilty person innocent, I think we would agree that would not be just. That would not be fair. Now, is that what's happening here? Is God being unjust by letting this high priest off the hook when he knew that he was guilty? The answer is no, that's not what's happening here. God was able to pronounce the not guilty verdict upon Joshua and still uphold his justice because he knew something that nobody else in that courtroom might have known at the time. He knew that someone else would have to pay the penalty for Joshua's sin. God knew that someone else would have to bear the cost. And you know, we see a faint but very clear hint of this down in verses 8 and 9. Let me read them for us again, and I encourage you to look there. Here, the Lord is speaking to Joshua again through the angel who represents him as the judge. And in verse 8 it says, Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I'm going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes or facets or sides on that one stone. And I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Now look carefully here with me at these verses. First, we'll see that God tells Joshua that he as the high priest and his fellow priests, are a symbol of things to come. And then God speaks in the future tense. He says that he will bring his servant. Not I am bringing or I have brought, but I will bring my servant. Now, who is the servant exactly? Well, we don't have any details here. All that God says, the only detail he provides is a rather ambiguous clue at the end of verse 8 where he refers to this servant whom he will bring someday as the branch now you may have noticed in your english bible that the first letter of that word branch is capitalized capital b that's not in the original language the bible translators made that decision but i think it's the right one When we look at the few other instances where this word is used in the Old Testament, it's very clear that it's not describing the limb of a tree. It's talking about a person. We see an example of this from Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, where it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. So this branch that God will raise up or bring, this branch is going to be a king of some sort. But remember that in verse 8 of our passage, Zechariah 3.8, God tells Joshua the high priest that he and his associates are symbolic of things to come. So this individual, whoever he is, this individual that God will bring someday will apparently be a king in david's line he'll be the promised branch but he'll also be a priest like joshua this servant of god will both be a king and a priest somehow in some way in this one person both of these offices will be fulfilled king priest More importantly, according to the end of verse 9 in our passage, if you look there, this coming king and priest will remove the sin of the entire land in a single day. He will apparently need to offer just one sacrifice that will take away the sin of all the people of God. Now, Many of us here who are familiar with our Bibles, we know who the servant of God is, don't we? We've learned that he was the true priest who offered that single sacrifice that removes the sin of God's people once and for all. We've learned that this priest didn't just offer this definitive sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. We read about this in New Testament passages like Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. But when Christ came as high priest, of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of his creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal Redemption. How was God able to pronounce this not guilty verdict upon Joshua and still uphold his justice? Well, it's because he knew that someone else would eventually bear the cost. Someone else would pay the penalty for Joshua's sin. And what was true for Joshua in his day is also true for every believer who has trusted in Christ alone. You know, as I think about that extra night in Miami, I realized that my friend who was traveling with me, he was in the same predicament. He didn't pack an extra pair of clothes either. But what if he did? And what if he went out of his way to be extra nice to me by saying, you know, hey, Brian, I've got an extra T-shirt here. Why don't you wear it? We're the same size. It'll fit you. And trust me, it'll feel much nicer. I don't mind wearing my t-shirt from yesterday. Please, go ahead and wear it. That would have been really nice of him. And you know, in some ways, that's kind of what Jesus did for us. We know we are guilty. But the Bible says that all true Christians are clothed with Christ's perfect righteousness. When we are united to Jesus through faith, God looks upon us sinful us as if we had lived Jesus' perfect and sinless life. But, you know, that's only half the story. And this is kind of where my analogy for my night in Miami breaks down. Because God doesn't just clothe us with the perfect righteousness of His Son. There was somebody who had to bear the cost of our sin. Our sinless Savior had to be willing to be treated like a sinner, even though he was 100% innocent. To borrow from the analogy of our passage today, our great king and priest was willing to be clothed with our sin as he suffered and died for us. As he was hanging on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had committed personally, every sin that every believer would ever commit, even though he was innocent, even though he had done nothing wrong. My friends, this is the message of Christianity. This is the gospel. Let me finish by offering three quick thoughts for application. First, i like to suggest that we shouldn't pretend that we're better than we really are. Like Joshua in the beginning of our story, we are sinners, you and I. We are unclean. We are unworthy to serve God. And this is not low self-esteem. This is just reality. This is who we are. We shouldn't pretend that we're better than we really are. Second, we shouldn't defend or excuse ourselves. Now, I'm not sure if you noticed this, but... There's one person in our story who never speaks. There's one person in our story who is silent throughout, and that person is Joshua. He can't say anything as Satan accuses him because it's all true. He doesn't try to blame anyone else. He doesn't blame his parents or his childhood. There's none of that. He just stays quiet. He is silent because he knows deep down that he's not righteous. But the good news for him is that he's not condemned either, and neither are we. The good news of the gospel is that God has done everything that you and I need in order to make us acceptable to him. He has given us this great king and priest who has taken away our sin and covered us in his perfect righteousness. Third and last, I'd like to suggest that we should show our gratitude for God's saving mercy by living for him. If you look with me at verse 7, we see God telling Joshua through the angel, this is what the Lord Almighty says, if you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here yes god wants joshua to live in obedience to him and keep his requirements that he can fulfill his duties as the high priest but please notice the order here god doesn't give joshua these instructions before he provides him with the new clothes he does it after god doesn't say to joshua you must obey me if you want to earn my forgiveness and mercy No, he says, Joshua, I've already forgiven you. I've already pronounced my verdict of not guilty. I've already covered you with these new clothes. So now, go and live for me and obey my commands. I know many of us know this already, but it's worth repeating again and again and again, my brothers and sisters in Christ, we never obey to earn God's forgiving love. We obey because we are already secure in his forgiving love. The order makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this obscure story from this obscure book that fills us with such great hope as we're reminded of this gospel message. We know we are guilty. We know we're unworthy. There's nothing that can change that reality on our own strength. But we also know that you are a merciful, good, forgiving, loving God. You do not leave us to wallow in our sin. Like sticks rescued from a fire, you've reached down and saved us. We're so grateful that you not only remove our sin from us, but you cover us. You clothe us with the perfect righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ. You look upon us as if we lived his perfect life. And Lord, we're broken by the reminder that in order for that to happen, Jesus, you, our great king and high priest, had to be willing to be clothed with our sin as you entered the most holy place, as you offered that final sacrifice yourself to remove our sin forever. Lord, would you please help us to rest and rejoice in that great hope? And then from that hope, live for you. Point others to you. We ask this in his great name. Amen.